Last week, we went over and spent a little bit of time in James and uh, kind of compared how Paul looks at justification by faith and James looks at justification by works. We spent a lot of time on that. You have notes on that that were uh, provided for you uh, in a PowerPoint presentation, which you could download if you wish. Do you have any questions or follow-up on that? I didn't get any assignments, so I wasn't sure how I should process that. <laughs> But since I have no responsibility, no ability to hang anything over you, I just assumed you all mentally did it. You just didn't put it in writing. The only, the only real question is, why don't people get that? You know, uh, Fred, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it needs to be explained, and it needs to be emphasized. But to be honest with you, I haven't heard a lot of people from the pulpit do what we did. Compare the two and analyze the two so that people can understand the, the vantage point that Paul starts from, the vantage point James starts from, and why they do not disagree. They complement one another. That's a very valuable thing to be able to do. And so you are now among the enlightened. Go thou and do likewise. So teach that. Okay. Well, we're going to get back. If there are any other questions, thank you, Fred. That was a good comment. I want to come back to Galatians and finish that section particularly, we started with chapter 3, verse 1, and it will end at the end of chapter 4. Paul is going through a series series of kind of bullet point arguments, and we're about to look at uh, verse 8 of chapter 4, where he makes a very strong, passionate appeal to the Galatians uh, as he's dealing with this issue. And so it's short. It's only a few verses, 8 through 11. Now, there's something I want you to observe here. It is very, very important, and only insight from the original language can help you see this. First of all, in verse 8, look at the word no, and then in verse 9, look at the word no. Both phrases are no God. The issue is they're different words for no. So the K-N-O-W in verse 8 is oida. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but the difference is oida means to know facts about something. Whereas in verse 9, the word is gnosko. And that word for K-N-O-W means to intimately know, to intimately, relationally know. You see the difference? Know facts about something. To intimately know. That's why the Bible, both actually Old and New Testament, sometimes use the word know as a figure of speech for sexual intercourse. And Adam knew his wife Eve. Remember that? In, in Hebrew, it's Yadah. But it's, it's, it's the same idea. So keep that in mind. That really opens up, in, in, a, in a marvelous way, the point Paul's making. Formally, now remember, he's writing... To the Galatian churches, these are Greco-Roman people who have come to faith in Christ. Formally, meaning before they put their faith in the Lord, when you did not know God, you did not know the real God, you did not know the real facts about that God, you really didn't know anything about him. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Now, if they're Greco-Roman people, who would that be? Well, I mean, I, I'm assuming all of you have at least a cursory knowledge of 
you know, in the Greco-Roman world, the chief god was Zeus. Romans called him Jupiter. Then there was Aphrodite, or the Romans called her Venus. There was Mars, the god of war. I mean, th th those, you, know, you recognize those names, don't you? They're the gods of the Greco-Roman world. That's what Paul's saying. Formally, before you hear about Christ, you didn't really know the facts about the one true only God. You were worshiping these other gods, close quote, close quote, gods, in quotation marks. What's the first word of verse 9? But, strong adversative, contrast, but now. So he's contrasting before, now, that you've come to know God. And as I mentioned just a minute ago, it's a different word. Now that you gnosko God, you know him intimately. You know him relationally. Or rather, to be known by God. That's, I'm so thankful he added that. Because it accentuates and drives home the point. Both perspectives. You not only know God and have a relationship with him, he knows you intimately has a relationship with you. To the extent that Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse, excuse me, in the Upper Room Discourse, says to the 12 in the room, I used to call you disciples, but now I call you friends. I mean, every time I read that, I'm just absolutely astonished by that. When you go back to the Old Testament, there are only a handful of people. Abraham is the prominent one that God calls his friend. Jesus calls us friends. Each one of you is a friend of God. That's what Paul's driving. Not only do you know God, have that relationship with him, he knows you intimately and relationally. And uh, uh, Paul says in another part of Scripture, Romans 8, that one of the results of that is you can address God now as Abba which is a marvelous illustration of that closeness and intimacy. So this is what he's saying. I ask this as a rhetorical question. Now that you come to Gnosko God and to be known by him, how can you turn back again to the weak and elementary, worthless elementary principles of the world? Now, that, again, we've talked about that before, that phrase weak and elementary principles, it's referring to the belief system of the Greco-Roman God. And so, I mean, it's, it's an appropriate question. Here's where you are now. Why in the world would you want to go back there? Why would you want to go back into that kind of stuff? Because he says, you were slaves whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored in vain. And so he's just referring to what those different phrases, days, months, the various feast days and things associated with their previous worship system. So it's a strong and I believe very effective challenge to these folks. Because remember, as the Judaizers come into this, they're trying to get these people to worship and to align with God through all the, the Jewish festivals and Jewish rules and Jewish legalistic uh, uh, facts, facts that were a part of Judaism. And, adding to, and Paul says, why do you want to do all that? That is totally opposed to by grace through faith, which has freed you from all of this. And so it's a very reasonable appeal 
Another way Paul puts it in Philippians 3, you are going forward. Don't look back. You're going forward. Why do you want, if you're going forward in your progress with the Lord, why do you want to go back to something that was part of your life before you came to know Christ? And that's one of the greatest challenges. I've worked with young adult men most of my life, at least in the career I used to have. But anyway, and that is always the greatest challenge with young guys. They are believers, and they're, they're, they're going with the Lord, but they keep going back and falling back into those old patterns and old habits of sin in their lives, and they can't break free of that. And I, That's why you would always use Philippians 3, 14 with those guys. Paul says, I do not look back. I press on to the high calling of the prize which is in Christ Jesus. So many believers... And I'm thinking it's a fairly good group in this room, plus all those online. I'm thinking some of this applies to you. No matter your age, you're going into the future with your foot on the brake and your eye in the rearview mirror. That is not how the Lord wants you to look at the future. You are freed from this. Now you press on. And that's, that's the whole matter of sanctification, which we've talked about zillions of times in this group. But that's what Paul is saying. How can you guys want to go back to anything like that? You're free in Christ. Uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, God told them, don't look back. Don't look back. One day, yeah, oh, we have direction for a reason. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I was, as you were talking about, I was thinking of a little baby uh, learning to walk. They kind of unstable. On their feet a little bit, and then they grow and they develop and they keep their balance better. But, um, I think maybe Christians are sometimes like baby walkers. Absolutely. They need help sometimes. Absolutely. And that's, as Christians, that's what we do. Reach out. Encourage yeah. and help and support. That's right. That's right. One of the guys in my 6.30 a.m. Bible class that I teach, he shared with him this morning, his teenage son, uh, who just graduated from high school, has started schooling. He's really struggling. He tried to commit suicide last night. It was just a real, you could see in his face, it's wrenching. The police had been called in because uh, his son didn't live with him. He was at a school, but... Uh, I don't know anything about his son. I, I, I really don't know anything about the details. But the, 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 the struggle that he shared with, he is a believer, but he's struggling with all of the things of his past life. I, you know, I'm guessing if he just graduated from high school last year, he's probably about 19 maybe. Yeah. Maybe 18, but more than likely 19, even possibly 20. But So he's a young man, and that, that struggle – and this is true for anyone, but it's especially young guys who have these habits and patterns of sin in their life. They come to know Christ. To break that is really hard. Another illustration of that, I had lunch last Monday with my, my boss, my pastor, and we were, were talking about really trying to strategize about the teen guys in our church and how do we minister to them. And he was telling me his son – is in high school. He will be a senior in high school next year. But anyway, 
He's an athlete. A group, a whole group of athletes are sitting around the lunch table. You know what they're talking about? Watching porn on their smartphones and masturbating. That's what they were talking about. And Matt and I were talking about that. We just said, you know, when I was growing up, which is really a long time ago, it's when the Earth's crust was just starting to harden until long, in the 1950s. You remember? Not that you guys know even what I'm talking about. But if you're gonna if you're gonna view pornography in the 1950s, you had to go to a special store and they had a special rack, and there was always a certain amount of shame associated with that, which was always sort of a prohibition. That's all gone. Not, no, nobody feels any shame about engaging in this. I, I'm talking about in terms of the culture. The culture has no shame in doing that. There used to be shame. And all I'm saying is you have young guys because that becomes addictive. I, I think you know that. And that can be anything that becomes addictive. And then, this goes on for several years. And if a guy comes into Christ to break that, that is not an easy thing to break. And I'm just saying that what Paul is talking about here is going to say, this used to be your past. You were enslaved to that. Why would you want to go back to anything like that again? Why would you want to do that? Because you didn't even know the facts about God. Now you know him intimately and personally. Why, why do you want to go back to that enslavement? And so it's, it, no matter how you think about this issue, anything in our culture today, that to which you are enslaved, you're now free, positionally in Christ. Now press on. But you've got to break that habit. You have to have a strategy to break that habit. I'm studying Job in one of my other classes, and we're getting near the end of the book. In chapter 29, where Job is defending himself, I have disciplined myself to not take a second look at a virgin. I'm quoting literally in the Hebrew. That's part of strategy for holiness. And the, every one of us is men. We face that. I, at my fitness center I go to, there are gals that are pretty cladly, you know, they don't have a lot on and their stuff is very tight. You cannot avoid that first look, but you can discipline yourself about the second look. And I'm telling that's something you just have to do. And that's, Paul is saying this to the Galatians, and it's the message that we need to say to everyone. We need to come alongside and hold each other accountable. And that those accountability frameworks are so, so important for spiritual growth. And that's what the church is supposed to do. Well, we got a little bit of bunny trails. You remember it was all Fred's fault, but we're now over that, okay? <laughs> Any other thoughts online, everybody with me? Look at verse 12, and he begins the, the, the second thought. There's one more thing he wants to do, but he, he now gets very, very personal. And in verse 12, in this paragraph, which ends in verse 20, he deals with his motives. That is Paul's motives. And he contrasts how they used to treat Paul when he first came to them and now how they're treating it. And he asks, what changed? So let's let's look at this. Brothers, and this it's out of us, which could be brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now we gotta stop there. Okay, what in the world does he mean by that? Now remember, the issue is what the Judaizers are teaching, but the Judaizers are pressing that you add to faith, keeping the law. 
circumcise our young boys, observing the Sabbath, keeping the feast days, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when he says, become as I am, what does he mean? Free from bondage to the law. Now that's extraordinary because Paul's a Jew. But he came to faith in Christ in Damascus Road, and he began to understand that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, ascension. The law is no longer operative. I'm free from the law. Become as I am, as I have become as you are. What does that mean? I become like you, a Gentile. You know, Paul says in Romans 9, uh, to a Jew, I'm a Jew. To the Gentile, I'm a Gentile. To the so I become all things to all men that are in some. So Paul says, I've accommodated to you. But I want you to have the same perspective about the law because the Judaizers, the Judaizers are threatening through their teaching the security you have as a believer. They're trying to re-enslave you to something that you have absolutely no obligation to be enslaved. None. So, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise, despise me, but received me, notice the, the analogy, as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, here is new information. When you go back to Acts chapter 13, which is the account of the first missionary journey, you don't see this information, but Paul tells us. these Some of these towns that he stopped in, Lystra, Derbe, uh, Pisidian, Antioch, there's some of the towns. He's, what did, he says, why did he stop in this town? A physical ailment, an infirmity. Whatever it was, they helped him. They aided him. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. You treated me like an angel. In other words, they really cared for me. Again, this is new information. When you read Luke's account in Acts 13, you don't see that information. Paul's just adding it. And it's insightful because as he is as he had ministered to them in presenting the gospel, they had ministered to him, caring for him, whatever that need was. We don't know what it was. And so he's just saying, okay, that's what our relationship used to be. Verse 15, what therefore has become of the blessing you found? What's changed? <laughs> you used to look at me as a blessing, you cared for me. What's changed? For I testify, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now that causes some expositors. So, okay, there's the, there's, there's the thorn in the flesh. There was the physical problem. It was an eye problem. Maybe, but possibly, torn your eyes out is just hyperbole. Hyperbole is language of exaggeration. And, you know, we use that all the time in our conversation with people. We see some, say, some extreme, you know, exaggerated, uh, exaggerated uh, language to drive home a point. It could be an eye problem, but it, it does not necessarily. It simply could be a figure of speech, exaggerated language. The point is, you guys really cared for me. You would be willing to do anything for me. 
And so he poses again. How then, in verse 16, how then have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? The truth about the Judaizers, the truth about what they're teaching, and the truth that you guys are falling for this stuff. And isn't that, isn't that interesting? He uses that very strong word, enemy. What you used to be, what our relationship used to be characterized by, now that I'm telling you the truth about these Judaizers, you regard me as an enemy. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Who's the they? The Judaizers. These are the real enemies. The they are the real enemies. Because they're seeking to, and the the Greek word there that shut you out is really one word, it's alienate. They want to cut you off from me. Cut you off alienate you from the truth. It is always good, verse 18, it is always good to be much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm in present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I want you to note in verse 19, ESV translates it, my little children. It is the only time Paul uses that in his 13 letters. If you go to the Apostle John in 1 John, for example, he uses it all the time. But Paul doesn't. So that he uses it here with the Galatians. My little children, my dear children, my intimate Spiritual children about whom I care so much about. I'm really embellishing it, but that's the idea. This really matters to Paul. He is deeply hurt by what has happened. But he doesn't lash out. He uses the term of intimacy. My dear children, my little children, my little loved ones, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, your theology that I hopefully have added to and helped to sharpen, your theology should easily discern what he's talking about. Anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Is he talking about justification or is he talking about sanctification? Talking about sanctification. Christ formed in you, the transformation. And Paul says, as I was in anguish, as I presented the gospel to you and you accepted the gospel and you were justified, now I'm going through it again as you're being torn apart so that you can go forward in the process of as Christ is formed. Because remember, the goal of sanctification is to become like Christ. That's what he's saying. And I, I really, here really, man, I know you can figure this out on your own, but here you really see the pastor's heart he doesn't give them deep theological discourse. He's already done that. Now he's getting really personal. I love you guys. I care for you. You're my little spiritual children. I led you to the Savior. And somebody's trying to rip you away from the family. And this hurts me. 
And I'm in anguish again because I want Christ formed in you. And that's most of the times pastors they're not evangelists. They and you you do them. Not really a lot of people are Christ. But you lead people to Christ. But your main task is you're the instrument God, one of the instruments God's using in sanctification. That's that's your role. You're preaching, you're teaching, you're giving pastoral counsel. All that stuff is a part of the process of sanctification. That's what Paul's doing. And he's in anguish about this because he looks at what's happening and he just shakes his head. I can't believe it. And he even adds. I wish I could be present with you in verse 20. Change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. I just can't figure it out. I don't know what to make of you. You really see pastors, Paul's pastor heart, pastoral heart here. He really cares. He's the shepherd of this flock, so to speak. Okay? Were the Galatians the first church that he established? There's a first Galatian church. I believe so, Fred. I believe yeah. so. As, if we follow the record of Acts and the missionary journeys, these would be the first ones he planned. So, going along with the, the theme of, of diatribe and, and uh, exasperation, you know, the hyperbole of gouge your eyes out yep. and, and the and, Forcefulness of my little children just are very consistent with the entire theme throughout Galatians. Very good insight. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, and when we see a, a Christian kind of struggling, uh, all of us here, it's, it's, it's a battle. We battle not against principalities, um, mm -hmm. powers, and ideas. But we need to come alongside and be an encouragement. Mm -hmm. uh, to the world, and he just may need just a little bit of time, and he's more. Oh, that's all. Because I know you guys probably know this, but I'll nonetheless say it. You need to really pray for your pastor and those that are a part of the staff because it is, there is nothing more exhausting and preparing for messages, studying, I mean, it, I, I do that. It's hard work. It's really a lot of hard work. But then you add to that the human dimension of the people you really care and love about, and you are watching them struggle with things, and, and the agony you feel. And as you hear about it, people come to you, and they give you their burdens, and they pour all your, and you're bearing all this stuff. And everybody expects you to be up bouncing into church with delight and happiness, no care in the world, but you're bearing the burden of all of this stuff because people come to church with all their baggage and junk and dump it on you, so to speak, to, to one degree or another. You're going to be passing it right on to God. Well, that's it. I mean, it's, <laughs> you, you, you must be dependent on the Lord because it really wears you down. And that's another reason why it is also important, and I always tell, I've done some consulting with elders, with elder boards. One of the functions of an elder board is a protective function of the pastor. You must protect that pastor. And you, you must insist that he take breaks. You must, even some churches are going so far as to formalize a sabbatical program. Because if not, the pastor will burn out. 
And that's mm-hmm. a, my greatest concern with my, my pet, Matt. I I do a, a, an eight week series in the summer, and I wait. Well, like I have any authority, I just said, disappear, brother. Disappear these eight weeks. Yeah. I don't see you in the building these eight weeks. Now he never listens to me. He he yeah. doesn't listen. But usually about two weeks, maybe three weeks, he isn't there because he needs to get away. He just needs to do that. And so it's just, and this is you see this with Paul, but. One other, this is, again, pretty self-evident, but remember something, too, about Jesus. How many times, especially in Mark's gospel, but how many times do you see Jesus get away? Get away alone, quietly, or sometimes with the guys, in Mark 8, Jesus says to the guys, come away and rest for a while. That's really important counsel, (laughs) because it is exhausting, and it wears you down. Because you see what you see with the more you work with people, you see the effects of sin in people's lives. Even if they come to know Christ, still the effects of sin and their struggles. And the victory is for you is to roll all that on Jesus, but then help them to break those habits. And that and that, that's why you need others. You need others around you to help. And that, that's why I pity I because I, when I the school I used to lead. Uh, the guys that we would graduate, they'd go out into these small rural churches where there is no staff. There's no help. It's all on him. And unless the elders understand, they're going to burn the guy out. Lord, you keep him humble, we keep him poor. You ever hear that saying? That's what elders in rural communities say often. It's terrible. But but I used to, I used to, because I traveled, I used to go to some of these elder boards and some of these small, I said, you guys need to re, redefine your role as elders with this young guy. Because you're either going to make a very good pastor or you're going to ruin him. You have to help him. You, and you have to support him, that protective function. And so I'm way off base here. Let's get Back to the text. Paul closes out his argument in verse 31, excuse me, 21 through 31, by an allegory. Now, an al- what is an allegory? An allegory is a story, but it's a story, with, but it's a story based on something that's true. So what you're going to see Paul do is he's going to tell a factual story out of the book of Genesis about Abraham, about Sarah, and Hagar. He's going to tell that story. Then he's going to say, I want to apply this allegorically. So an allegory is a, it's like an application of a factual story to teach a truth. You follow that? It's it's an interpretation of a factual story to teach a truth. That's what Paul's going to do. Now, why does he use an allegory? Because Paul doesn't ever do this. This is the only time Paul does anything like this. He does it for two reasons. Number one, the Judaizers. The Judaizers taught using allegory. And secondly, the rabbis, and that is still true today. If you ever study rabbinics, the rabbis, the Mishnah, that's, well, anyway, the rabbis use allegory. 
That is their primary interpretive tool. And that drives everybody crazy because if you want to study rabbinics, you're studying 1,252 rabbis' allegorical interpretations of that story in Genesis. I'm serious. That's the prime. So Paul is going to meet the Judaizers on their turf. Do you follow everything? Are you linking everything together? I've been just saying. So he tell he. It's the only time he does that. His thirteen epistles. He takes a, a factual story out of the Old Testament it's about Abraham, Sarah, and, and Hagar. And he says, "I'm going to interpret this allegorically to drive home this point." So look for the story. Look for the interpretation. Look for the point. Okay. Nobody said okay, but I'm going to assume you're with me. All right. Okay. Tell me what. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Okay, what he's going to do is he's going to go back to Torah. Okay, you want to dabble in the law? You want to be exposed to Torah? I'm going to go back to Torah. Remember, Torah is a Hebrew word for law, but it's usually referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, so he's going to go back there. Four, now he's going to explain. He's going to tell the story in verses 21, 22, and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one of a slave woman and one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh. The son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, he is going back and telling the, the story that I virtually, <coughs> excuse me, virtually everyone is familiar with about, <coughs> excuse me, I teach a lot on Wednesday, so sometimes I get <coughs> stuff caught in my throat. You're all familiar with the story. Let me quick summarize it. Abraham has been promised at 75 years old. He's been promised he's going to have a son, right? Okay, one of you is with me, right? So his wife is Sarah. In this text, she is the free woman. She is the woman of promise. What promise? The Abrahamic covenant. Now here's Sarah. It's going uh, a couple years. She's getting older. Abraham's getting older. So she says, Abraham, I've got the solution. Here's how we're, we're going to help God out. You sleep with my slave woman that we purchased when we were down in Egypt, and she will give birth to the heir. Okay? And astonishing, Abraham says, good idea. So he sleeps with her, and who's born? Ishmael. That is the one of a slave woman. That's the son of the slave according to the flesh. And Paul uses that's his sarks, flesh there, as his favorite word for human desire, for human sin, that which is outside the purpose of God. So to say every every Judaizer in the in AD 49 who hears Paul say they know exactly what he's talking about. And for the most part, Probably most of the people in Galatians churches would have, because this is a very, very famous story. Because this is the story of the covenant line. Okay. Verse 24. 
Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. And ESV has translated that superbly. They are spot on there. Some translations have figuratively. That's too weak. It's best to translate it. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. So what he's going to do is going to take this factual story and allegory. He's going to make this into an allegory. And it's set up like this. The son of the slave woman represents this. The son of the free woman represents this. Do you follow me? So you can put a chart together. So that's what he's doing. The son of the slave woman represents this. Ishmael represents this. Isaac, the son of the free woman, the covenant son, the covenant of promise, he represents this. So what is he doing? Look at what he does allegorically. These women are two covenants. Well, no, they're not. They're two women. But he said, no, it's allegorical. So the allegory is they represent two covenants. One's from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. But she isn't. But what's she doing? Just allegorically. I'm going to be, I'm going to interpret. Hagar represents Mount Sinai, the law, enslavement. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. Wow. That's firm, forceful, dogmatic language. Hagar represents present-day Jerusalem, where all the Pharisees are, where the Sanhedrin is where that, that rigid enforcement to the 613 strictures of the law that they put you as a burden upon you. That's what they represent. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And to make sure we get it, he get it, I mean, make sure he substantiates it, validates it by quoting from Scripture. For it is written, and what he quotes from verse 27 is from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. This passage, by the way, in Isaiah 54, is kind of a, a triumphant anticipation of Israel in the future. A triumphant anticipation of Israel, free from its bondage, free from its exile, restored to its land, and the abundance of the land. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you are not in labor. For the children of the desolate, those who are in bondage, those who have been in exile, those who have been under Babylonian authority, one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. There's coming a time when return from the exile and the abundance of restoration Tables are going to be turned. And so what is he saying? I'm interpreting this allegorically. That Hagar and her son Ishmael and Sarah and her son Isaac represent two covenants. They represent two paths. The one is the law and the bondage it brings if you do not live by it correctly. Or the freedom of grace according to the Abrahamic promise, when all the nations will be blessed, the blessing of salvation. So he says, verse 28 is now the application. He's told this factual story. He's interpreted this story allegorically. 
Now he gives the application. Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. In what sense? Chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis. In you, all the nations will be blessed. The blessing of salvation. You are the children of promise. Just as at that time, he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Now, you got to go back again to Genesis. Do you remember? Ishmael is mocking and making fun of Isaac. Remember that? He says, that's exactly what the Judaizers are doing now. They're mocking and making fun and belittling and chastising you. What does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He's quoting from Genesis 21, verses 10 and 12. What's the implication? As the slave woman and her slave son was cast out, what are you going to do to the Judaizers? Cast them out. You are not children of the slave, but of the free one. Now, I, I hope you followed all this because I'm down to about 10 minutes. But he is he's bringing his argument to its powerful conclusion by using the interpretive method of the Judaizers to drive home the point and to offer the solution. As Abraham dismissed Hagar and the slave son, you get rid of the Judaizers. Because they represent two covenants. And you are being lured into following the covenant of the slave one. This is, and he, what he's saying to them is, if you guys follow these, you're going back into slavery. And the solution is, what Abraham did, kick them out. Because you you are not children of the slave. You're children of promise. You're children of the free woman. You are participating in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the blessing of salvation. Now, I don't know if you get excited about this. I'm not sure I see that in this room. I don't know what's on line. Maybe you guys in line are jumping up and down with excitement. But this is an incredibly powerful conclusion. He's meeting these crazy guys on their own turf and saying, see, even the Torah shows that what you are doing is outside of God's purpose. So you Galatian churches, do what Abraham did. Kick them out. Give them the right hand of fellowship in the rear end with your boot. Don't ever say I said that, but that's just an interpretation of, or an application of what he's saying. And you got to remember that Jews who from childhood have heard this story oh, time, my goodness, time yeah. and time oh, again. So it's not, it's not saying anything that they don't know. That's right. Absolutely. Now, Glenn has a little chart that he's going to flip up, and it's, it's something that I'll make available to you guys as well. Or we'll send it out to you. You can copy it if you want. All it does, it just looks like this. It just summarizes, like I said, you can take this, and you can make it, here are the children of Sarah, here are the children of Hagar, and just see what the allegorical interpretation. And you can see Hagar, bondwoman, Sarah, free woman. Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, Isaac. Mount Sinai, mother bondage, freedom. 
Jerusalem that is above, Jerusalem that it now is, etc. And it's just it's it's just a, a marvelous illustration of what Paul is arguing, and it just visually allows you to capture the point that Paul's making. We'll make that available to you online if you want to copy it or, or uh, run it off on your own or whatever. All right, now um, I don't want to hurry, but I, I want to make sure that number one, you follow and understand. This last segment, 21 through 31 of chapter 4, as Paul concludes his theological argument, his defense of justification by faith is now over. Well, your thought paper is 3,000 words. Summarize Paul's argument and defense, and it's, it's about eight major parts of justification by faith. He starts with this rhetorical question in chapter 3 and ends with this allegory. And I know you could do it. None of you will, but I know you could do it. All right. But it's really, this is, uh, men, I mean, this is really important to me because I'm the teacher, I guess. But it's really important to me that you have clear in your own mind and especially in your own heart that justification is by faith plus nothing else. Sanctification is that process that the Heavenly Father uses by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform you into the image of Jesus. If you get that difference, you understand the main point Paul's making. The law is done. It has no role in this. It plays no role anymore. It was good. It was perfect. It was right. Romans seven twelve. 12. Jesus fulfilled it. And so chapters 5 and 6, what Paul does is he begins now to answer this question. Given justification, what does the transformed life look like? Got it? That's what we're going to be exploring. What does the transformed life look like? And the key to these two chapters, 5 and 6, is the Holy Spirit. Because Paul is now going to enter, as he does masterfully in Romans 8, but he's now going to bring in the functional role of the Holy Spirit as one of the members of the Trinity, the functional role of the Holy Spirit in this transformation process that he calls in Romans process of sanctification. But he starts with a command. It's one verse. For freedom, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 5 now. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now that begs a question. Free from what? the law. For all the ceremonial laws and regulations that the Judaizers are proclaiming, insisting upon, demanding for a more complete justification, a more complete sanctification. This is not, this is a, this is a declaratory in the indicative mood. It is a declaration of truth. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He fulfilled the law. He completed the law. He set us free from the law. 
Therefore, now it goes from the indicative mood to the imperative mood. Here's the command. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, that's a command. After you've come to faith in Christ, that's a command that you now begin to follow as a process of sanctification. I am not going back into slavery. And in terms of the Judaizers, I'm not going back to in any way adding law stuff, circumcision stuff, Sabbath stuff, feast day stuff, etc., etc., to my understanding of salvation. I am free in Christ. I'm free from sin, from Satan, from death, from the law. Jesus freed me from all that. And so the, the, the phrase uh, that's translated as a phrase is one word, but stand firm in the original is a military term. And that doesn't, doesn't take a lot of insight to figure out what he means. It's like the soldier standing firm defending something. You're standing firm defending what? Your freedom. Yeah, it's stand. Don't move. Don't retreat. Don't go back. That's, I would say this to these young guys, and I said it. No. Anyway, it, it just when you understand who you are in Christ, you and you and it, it takes time. It really does. But you, you begin to you don't want to go back. You want to stand firm and defend your ground, and then move forward. And that's what he's saying. And when when you understand the imagery of, of uh, militarily and the imagery he's using, and the context about the law and the Judaizer, this is a wonderful command. And for you and me today, stand firm on your holy ground of freedom. Don't give in to slavery. Slavery to what somebody's saying you need to add to their slavery to your past sins or habits. Stand firm in your freedom. The Wall Street Journal, the original editor and, and key founders of the Dow organization that founded this was his favorite verse. And it's always, always reprinted on Thanksgiving weekend. So those of you who subscribe to Wall Street Journal, on Thanksgiving coming up in November, which seems many, many years away, it's only a few months, look for that little, a reprinted every year. And it's, it's, I'm not sure he completely interprets it correctly because he's interpreting it a little differently. But for the most part, still, it's, it's a sound. You have freedom, stand firm and defend that freedom. Don't give an in. Don't go back. And so it's, it's, it's more so what he's going to do, what he now Paul is going to do, is he's going to start to explain what this looks like. If you are standing firm in your new position of freedom, you're not going back to law, you're not adding to law, anything like that. What does it mean? So he's going to start. He's going to start with an illustration of presumably something that was very dear to the Judaizer. Circumstances. Okay, are you with me? I'm trying to set us up because next week we're going to really dig into it, but we'll get started with it. Okay? Online, everybody okay? You with me? Okay. Silence means you're totally with me. Look, I'm in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Let's stop there for a minute. 
<clears throat> let's make sure you're clear and make sure you're also clear on why does he choose circumcision? He could have chosen the Sabbath, which was a very important Judaizer issue. He could have been cho- chosen some of the very important feast days that were part of the Jewish calendar or kosher laws or whatever. Why does he choose circumcision? It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The Judaizers are saying, you've experienced salvation, it's incomplete. Unless you circumcise your boys on eight days. Because that's the sign that you belong to God. It's the sign that you're in a covenant relationship with him. Paul says, if you accept that, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Because if you accept circumcision, if you believe that observing circumcision in the context of the covenant and that this is the defining mark of the Jew and it's the key to being a person under law, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. Now, this is something, we will study this when we get to the Epistle of James. It's something you see in Romans. It's something you see in Leviticus. It's something you see throughout the Old Testament. The law was an organic whole. If I put it that way, do you know what I mean by that? You can't pick one thing out and say, ah, I've kept it. No, 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 no. If you come under the obligation, you're obligated to the entire law. You must keep the Sabbath perfectly. You must keep all the feast days perfectly. You must also start gauging again the ceremonial stuff because the law is an organic, integrated whole. James will make that point when he's talking about the royal law of love in his epistle. Paul is reminding them of something. And, you know, these are Greco-Roman people who come to know that Christ are now being taught by the Judaism. guys. You guys got to come back. Under, you have to come under the law of Judaism now to have a complete salvation, complete sanctification. Paul said, I want to tell you something. If you agree with that premise, and you start circumcising your boys at eight days as a sign now you belong to God in this covenant relationship. You're now obligated to the entire law. Which would have been a shocking proposition for them to consider. It's not like they're saying you have to come under the law so you can be set free from it. Was, we were set free, but you weren't. So you have to come under so you can be set free. It's, it is a circular, and it's ridiculous. Paul is trying to demonstrate the absurdity of what they're teaching. If you want to know how he resolves this, come back next week. <laughs> Don't you love that in class with this anticipation and excitement? You just can't wait for seven days to get over. I'm not sure that's true. But anyway, I'm hoping you're catching the excitement of a study like this in Galatians. The theme of Galatians is freedom. The freedom we have in Christ. And in 2023, that's an important message to send to believers. Because a lot of people are putting people under bondage to things that do not have anything to do with the gospel. And I think that's something we have to be very sensitive to. Well, I'm going to pray, and uh, I've got to get to another uh, class here. But I hope you are with me. You have your assignment, and I'll be so excited to read those papers. Father, again, we thank you for the freedom we have in Jesus. 
Paul instructs us, stand firm in the liberty we have, the freedom we have in Christ. That has so many meanings to it. In the context of Galatians, it's freedom from the law and all the crazy things as Judaizers were trying to dump on them. For us, too, it's the freedom not only from the law, but the freedom as well from the habits and patterns and enslavement of sin. Jesus frees us from that positionally. Now we start to learn what it means to be free. We have to develop a strategy for holiness. We have to develop a strategy of how we're going to deal with and break those old habits. Lord, so many young guys really struggle with that. I would assume so a lot of older guys, too. But the freedom we have in Jesus is so precious. Help us to understand what that means. Help us to apply it to our lives. We're not under bondage. We're not under the law in any obligatory way. We're free in Christ. I thank you for that grand truth. I pray for these men, those guys online, as well as here in the room. Be with each one of them. Lord, we represent you in this world. We're free Christians, freed from slaving of of sin, of Satan, of our flesh, even of death. Jesus paid it all, and we bask in that wonderful freedom. Help us to live that way. As strong men of faith, we represent you well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Have a great week. I'll see you next week.